0: Well, friends, it's been quite a week, and I'm not referring to the Indiana primaries from this past Tuesday. I'm referring to last week's sermon on baptism. I mean, who who would have thought that a sermon on baptism in a Baptist church would generate so much discussion? And yet it has, and I'm grateful for the many conversations I've had with some of you this week and the conversations that you have been having with various elders. Many of you have expressed deep thanks for, for some of the things we got to think through, whereas others have had a few questions, and some of you have even raised a few concerns. And so uh, at the outset, I mean, we, I said that we were going to do this topical series on sort of why Baptist, what does it mean even to be Baptist, what are those things that are meant to define us as a church, and I wanted to do that because I felt we needed to recover much of what has been lost in the last hundred or so plus years as it comes to teaching on the local church, you know, just because a matter isn't essential for salvation, doesn't mean it's unimportant or unnecessary in our own obedience. And while nothing, I don't think anything I would have said last week would have been controversial to Baptist Christians 150 years ago, the fact that it generated so much discussion amongst us was just another reminder to me and it should be a reminder to us of how important it is to be having these very conversations. And so, before we move on to our topic of membership this morning, I did, though, want to circle back and just clarify any things that may have been left unclear in your own minds after last week, especially as it relates to the appropriate age of baptism uh, for believing what we understand to be believing children, and just... Again, as I hit this, I was speaking to you personally, opening up my own heart as a pastor. Last week, I wasn't laying out any future policies for UBC, just to be clear about that. Um, I wasn't saying last week that children couldn't be saved. Absolutely not. Praise God that's not the case. I think my wife was probably saved when she was four or five. Pray we would have more children saved very, very young. And I'm not saying children aren't sincere when they profess faith young, Nor am I saying that parents aren't sincere and seeking to follow the Lord if they desire and have led their children to be baptized young. I'm also not saying it was wrong if your child was baptized young, that somehow in doing so you dishonored the Lord. And I wasn't saying there was a magic age to 18. You know, something I noted closer to 18 was a common practice for Baptists many years ago. And though I personally prefer something closer to functional adulthood you know where a child has felt the pull of the world the flesh and the devil where they've been you know denounced in that biology class because they won't embrace materialism or they've been sort of shouted down in a classroom because they haven't jumped on board the lgbt agenda you know in those moments it's kind of easier to to see which child is willing to bear the cross and follow jesus but it's not like 18 is some magic on off switch The Bible, as I said, has no explicit teaching on the subject. It just doesn't have any. So it's not a matter, don't misunderstand me, it's not a matter of right versus wrong. This is one of those areas of prudence and wisdom where we need to deal sort of charitably and kindly and and honestly with one another as as we talk. So again, pray for the elders as we continue to think about such things. We had a long meeting this past Wednesday night. I think we made a little progress, so we're still working on that. We're trying to weigh those risks of not discouraging genuine believers and not deceiving possible unbelievers. Hard risks that you have to weigh. Just one final thing on last week. A number of you, after the sermon, said, Well, actually, now you've raised some questions about my own baptism, the circumstances behind it. And if that's the case, I just want to highlight once more uh, what I said is sort of necessary for uh, baptism to be biblical and valid. Need to be a believer. That's what the very essence of baptism in the New Testament needs to be in water, clear practice, needs to be in the name of the Trinity, Matthew 28. And it ought to have been in connection with the gospel, which usually means in the connection with the gospel-preaching church. Now, whereas a parachurch ministry like a youth camp or or a college ministry, that may be more irregular. But if it's a gospel-believing ministry, I don't think that makes it a false baptism, lest some of you be concerned or unclear about that. Now, because so many of you were going to have your own circumstances and situations, feel free to come talk to me or any one of the elders. But of course, I just want to underscore, this is why Jesus gave the Lord's Supper and baptism, those two ordinances, he gave them to the local church. He gave them to the local church to just... Be baptized in local churches. I know you may be taking a trip to Israel. And I know it is the Jordan River. I know it is where Jesus got baptized. And they'll let you take a rock as a souvenir. Someone gave me one once. I, I, I know that that might be a temptation. But let me just encourage you to say no. Just get baptized in your local church. That's what Jesus intends. One day, you'll gather together. And you'll gather together around another river coming right from the very throne of God. All right, so look forward to that day. Hope for that day long for that day. All right, a few things just to, to lay out there. So as we, as we move on to sort of this topic this morning of membership, this is just a, a reminder, sort of public service announcement, that what we're doing in this series is, is unusual. Normally, what you'll see me do is I'll open up God's word, and I'll take a passage of scripture, and the point of my message is, is simply the point of that passage, as best I understand it. But what we're doing in this series is we're taking a set of topics, and we're saying, okay, what does the Bible have to teach about this topic? And then we're surveying the scriptures, gathering what it has to say, and trying to present it in a coherent fashion. So that's a bit different. I recognize I'll be jumping around a lot. We don't have our Bibles open to one text. I think I have 30 or so different texts I'll reference. But we don't simply have time uh, in order to sort of open each one of them up. So as I make references, write them down. Feel free to go uh, go home afterward and reflect upon them and think more about them. Okay, so as we, as we turn this morning to this topic of membership... I recognize many of you here think you should formally, in some way, be united to a local church. I recognize many of you here are already going to be members. uh, In which case, I hope this time helps you sort of reflect and, and even feel more strongly about those commitments and why membership is important, why a meaningful relationship with others is actually critical for your own Christian life. But I recognize that some, and for whatever reason, you've not joined Well, I want to try and convince you this morning that it is actually really hard to obey the breadth of teachings in the New Testament without in some way formally being united and committed to a local body of believers. And so I hope you go away from this encouraged to do just that. It doesn't have to be this church, not by any means, it might be another church in the area. Another gospel preaching church, that's just fine. But I hope you you see those commitments as important. That there's a set of leaders that you'd be willing to follow and a group of Christians you'd be willing to love. Now, for the longest time, I personally, I thumbed my nose at this whole idea of church membership. As I told college students last week, you know, I grew up in coastal northern California. I attributed church membership to some east coast love affair with institutions. You know, I didn't understand how it had anything to do with my own Christian life. You know, membership made church sound like some snooty country club where you had to pay dues and Wear the proper attire, you know, sort of mind your behavior on the course. If anything, I thought a membership is rather elitist, sort of counterproductive to how I wanted to follow Christ. And I don't actually think my experience is that uncommon. You know, we live in an age that's increasingly sort of commitment phobic. In relationships, right, in careers, what do we want to do? We want to keep our options open. We want to keep them open. But you see, commitment phobia... And following Christ, those things actually don't happily coexist. It was Jesus who said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Few things are more options closing than following Jesus. But is this idea of a covenant relationship is this idea of is this idea of formal membership is actually a biblical idea do we even see it in the bible again i had not given much thought to this question until After college, never really been a member of a church. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm visiting this church for the second time, and they're coming to celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of the service. And I listen to the pastor as he says, you know, if you're a a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and a member of another evangelical church that preaches the same gospel you preached, you hear preached here, you're welcome to take the Lord's Supper with us. And I was listening carefully, and I thought, okay, I'm a, uh, yeah, I'm baptized. Yes, I'm a believer a member of another evangelical church. I've never been a member of a church in my life. And I realized he was actually saying, I shouldn't take the Lord's Supper. And I remember feeling, I remember feeling hacked off. Like, seriously, I can't, I've been taking the Lord's Supper all my life since since I've been a Christian. Why, Why can't I take the Lord's Supper with you? What makes you so special? Why can't I do it? You know, you don't know me, I was thinking. You don't know my life which was actually just the point. It was actually just the point. For when I went up to him after the service, I inquired. I said, now, now I just want to understand. I'd, I think I'd met him only briefly once. I said, so, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a member of a church, so I shouldn't take the Lord's Supper? And he said, well, are you opposed to being a member of a church? I said, well, I don't really think so. He said, well, I mean, does any church know you? Have they, have they heard your testimony? Are you accountable to any church? I said, not really. He said, are you opposed to such things? I don't think so. He's like, well, then why don't you join a church? So I don't know. No one's ever sort of told me to join a church. I, I wasn't really sure it was in the Bible. And so he said, why don't you just come to a, a membership class and just listen and see what you think, and, and let's go from there. And I thought, oh, why not? I could learn, and perhaps I'd gain something insightful, something useful, something interesting. So are there, well, I guess let me put it like this. Maybe you're in the same boat. You know, maybe you think, like, membership's not in the Bible. Don't tell me I have to go do it. Or maybe you think, oh, I'm not really sure it's in the Bible, but, you know, it might be helpful, so I'm willing to do what you guys require me to do just so I can be blessed in relationships. You know, maybe principally you're opposed or pragmatically you're willing to do it, but you're not really convinced of it. So I just want to say, are there any sightings like this in the Bible? Any sightings of this thing that we, that we call church membership? And one of the things I want to suggest to you is that, that membership isn't so much directly... Argued in the Bible as it is everywhere sort of assumed. It's not so much as directly argued as it is everywhere assumed. And in that sense, though it's not it's not of the same importance by any means as the Trinity, there's some analogies there. Not always directly argued, but constantly assumed. Because one thing we see from the very first pages of Genesis to the final pages of Revelation is that God is actually about building a corporate body. He works through individuals to bring them into corporate fellowship. So in the garden, God created not just one person, but he created two. There in the flood, he didn't just save one individual, he saved a host of families. His promise to Abraham was that he would be a blessing to many nations. He didn't merely work through Moses, but he worked through a people, Israel. And as you read through the Old Testament, one of the things you see is that there's great concern for who's a part of that body, who are the members of Israel, and they keep meticulous records to that end. And in the New Testament, the corporate identity, it's no longer defined now by natural birth as it was with Israel, but by spiritual rebirth. And yet those corporate images, they continue. And so we're called sheep. And Jesus says sheep are meant to be in folds. John 10. We're called branches, and branches are meant to be grafted into a vine. John 15, Romans 11. Bricks, Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 2, are meant to be part of a spiritual house. Children who call God as their father. Right? What have they been? They've been adopted into a family. Ephesians 2, Galatians 6. Members of the body, and by which the Bible means hands and feet and eyes and ears. Right? They're meant to be connected to that body, 1 Corinthians 12. You know, lone sheep? What do we call lone sheep? We call them dinner, right? It's not a good thing to be a lone sheep. Scattered branches and bricks. What do we call scattered branches and bricks? They're just debris. Children not brought into a family are what we call orphans, members of the body not connected to the body, right? They're amputees. They're, they're disconnected. They've been dismembered, and this is all sometimes a graphic way to prove the point that God saves us. He saves us as individuals in order then to gather us together as a body, to formally unite us to one another. And you see that as you go through the book of Acts. You'll notice that Christians there in Jerusalem, what were they? They were a defined group. There was a group numbering 120 in Acts 1. And by Acts 2, we see that Peter's preaching and the work of the Spirit has grown. That number has swelled now to over 3,000. In Acts 6, we see they're actually keeping records and lists. And this continues throughout the book. Right, Counting heads, keeping names. We see this throughout the book of Acts. We see it. As well, and how Christian leaders are called to be responsible not for every Christian everywhere, but for particular sheep. Acts 20, 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of God, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's a similar command in Hebrews 13:17. In other words, in the Bible. When the Bible speaks to elders, it assumes the elders know which Christians they are accountable for. You see it in a Christian's responsibility to submit to local leaders. Hebrews 13, 17, obey and submit to your leaders. Right? Not any leaders. You know, not the Archbishop of Canterbury, not some TV preacher, not another pastor down the road, but to the particular leaders you've covenanted to and agreed to to follow in the Lord with. And this, this relationship, we see it in the relationship, not just between Christians and leaders and leaders and Christians, but even Christians in the outside world. So in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul refers to those inside the church and he refers to those outside the church. And he calls, if you remember in 1 Corinthians 5, he calls that unrepentant man, the man who calls himself a Christian and yet is unwilling to turn from his sin, he says, that man you're to put outside the church. And of course, to to refer to those who are in and those who are out, it presumes there is some clear boundary line between the church and the world. And then in 2 Corinthians Chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says, the action by what? The action by the majority. The action by the majority upon that man, likely that man in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says that action was enough. But, of course, you can't speak to a majority unless you have a defined group of people. Right? This person, right? Not that person. And as you go through the New Testament, one of the other things you'll uncover is there are over 30 of these commands toward one another. These one another commands. Commands to love, to teach, to guard, to pray, to build up. If you think about epistles themselves, think about the New Testament epistles. They weren't just written to scattered Christians everywhere. Romans was written to the church in Rome. Corinthians to the church in in Corinth. It's the same with Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. Even as you get into the pastoral epistles, they're written to Timothy or Titus as pastors of particular churches. So I could just keep going, but I think one thing as you just keep reading the New Testament is that it's, it's abundantly clear that Christians are meant to be part of these defined groups. To say that you follow Christ but aren't united to a local body. is like saying that you're a soldier, but you're not a part of any unit. You know, you're a wall. You're just, you're wandering about. That's just not how, that's not how it functions. It's like a passenger at an airport. And they and they're without a boarding pass. Well, you know, they may have bought a seat. You know, they may belong on the plane, but without that boarding pass, how's the, ga- how's the gate agent, how is anyone else to know? It's like, claiming to be a citizen of the United States, and yet you have no social security number. You know, you've got no birth certificate, no passport. Apart from the the missionary situation in Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch, there are no examples of Christians not formally joined up with particular churches where they are known by those churches and accountable to those churches. Which means that if you're not a member, and I don't care what you call it, you know, But if, if you don't have these kinds of relationships formally with a church, the New Testament actually doesn't quite understand your claim to be a Christian. I'm not saying that you're not a Christian. I'm just saying the New Testament doesn't really have a category of one who claims to be united to Christ and yet will not unite to the expression of his kingdom and reign on earth, will not actually unite to his body. The Bible doesn't really have that category. Okay. So I've, I've laid some of that out to try to help you see, I think, what the Bible doesn't so much argue as what it assumes. Okay, so what, what then is, what is membership? What is membership? That's the second question we could ask. And if you recall last week, as I talked about baptism, and in some respects, membership is just the flip side of the coin, I said baptism was the Christian's public profession of faith in Christ, and it's the church's public declaration of that faith, thereby uniting the believer to the church and marking him off from the world. And it's that second half of that definition that really gets us to what membership is all about. It's how a a believer is formally united to the church, and then marked off from the world. So to state it, I think more clearly, and here's a definition, if you're looking for a definition, church membership is a covenant relationship in which a Christian unites himself to a local church, placing himself under the care and accountability of that church and giving himself to the spiritual care of that body. Uh, It's kind of a clunky definition, but it's the best I could do. All right, I'll say it one more time. Church membership is a covenant relationship in which a Christian unites himself to a local church, placing himself under the care and accountability of the church and giving himself to the spiritual care of that body. It's all about how a church takes particular responsibility for you and then how you take particular responsibility toward a church. But I think part of our problem, and I know part of my problem, as we think about membership, is that we've been approaching it all wrong. And so let me address just thirdly, let me address a number of membership misconceptions. All right, so this would be a sort of third thing that we walk through. Membership misconceptions, and I have about six. So hold tight, all right? First... Church membership is just like club membership. Church membership just like club membership. Many think of membership in that way. It's how I thought about it. It's some religious version of a country club or the rotary club. And so we approach it like a club or business, and we look for some group that will provide the best array of services I want sort of at the least cost or with the least amount of buy-in. But as we saw last week when we looked at Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, the church represents Jesus on earth. And as such, the local church is the authority that Jesus himself has instituted to officially affirm and give shape to my Christian life and to yours. It is that institution that Jesus created to officially affirm and give shape to my Christian life and to yours. You see, clubs begin with shared interests. Churches begin with a king who requires the obedience of his people. And kings, well, kings don't offer suggestions. They don't sell products. They don't provide resources that you can take or leave Which leads me then to a second, I think, membership misconception. And that is that that membership is this optional thing. It's it's optional. But if we claim to follow Christ as our king, then of course we must follow him in that one institution that he has left to reflect his glory. That is the local church. To treat the church like the Sierra Club with some kind of voluntary membership... It's to treat it like a service provider where the the consumer finally has all the authority. And that, my friends, I think that demeans Christ. It actually undermines God's plan to display his glory. So properly speaking, we we don't join churches. We submit to them. If Christ is our king, they're not something we join. If we follow him as our king, they're something we submit to. For the visible church, Again, that's where you find Christ's kingdom on earth. And to disregard that kingdom is finally to disregard the king himself. Now, those who live under state-sponsored persecution, you know, they often, frankly, they often get this better than we do. They've been baptized, and they've risked their lives often, and if they've been baptized, they've been brought into the formal fellowship of a church. They've changed allegiances. Their citizenship is no longer to to that former religion or to that nation or state, but now they have this heavenly citizenship with Jesus. So if you try to talk to them about voluntary membership, like it's some bowling league, right, they know all too well the price that they may have to pay for that new citizenship like a third misconception we have sometimes is that church membership is kind of like a get out of Gehenna free card. All right. So if you've, if you've come from perhaps a more Roman Catholic background where baptism is saving or a church of Christ where it's essential and necessary for salvation, then this might be a, a good point, a good thing to reflect on because some treat it like it's saving. You join a church, you check the box, God and I are now good. And so I can go on and live my life as I please. Well, that's actually not how it functions it all in the Bible. Membership, again, kind of like baptism, the flip side of the coin, membership reflects, it reflects your commitment to Christ. It doesn't affect it. So it reflects it, but it doesn't affect it. So it's why if you've come this morning, you know, you've come and you're you're not a Christian again, you've come to an odd series, I get it. But if you've come, just don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you need to join a church. I'm saying you need to understand that that relationship that church membership reflects, a relationship to God and to one another, that's actually the relationship you need. You need a relationship with Jesus Christ. You need to be forgiven of your sin. And the Bible says God, in great kindness and in great love, the God who made you, who has all authority as the author of all things, he has provided his son who lived that perfect life. He's provided him in his sacrifice and his death as a substitute for you. If you would turn from your sin and trust in Christ, and you can have the promise that the fellowship and the newness of life that Jesus talks about, eternity with him, you can be assured that promise is real because Jesus rose from the grave, the only man ever in history to rise from the grave like that. That's your promise that so you too one day will rise. And you can have that hope. So if you've come not as a Christian, that's the basic hope of the gospel. That's what I want you to hear this morning. So as you hear about membership, think, okay, membership, but it reflects that reality. So I hope that's something that you come to believe and to embrace. And if you want to talk more about it with me or someone afterward, you'd be welcome to do that. I encourage you to do that before you go. But a fourth thing. A fourth misconception, church membership is expressed sort of sufficiently in my informal relationships within the body. Now, if you're like me, I'm just, I'm confessing the same things I trust some of you feel. You would actually prefer your relationship with Jesus and others to exist on more informal terms. You know, so we get to know some people at church. You know, we go pretty regularly, we, we get involved some, maybe we go to an adult Bible fellowship, we occasionally hit a life group, you know, but we never formally join. Well, why don't we do that? Well, It's often because we want the benefits of those relationships, but we don't really want to commit to them. And yet, every meaningful relationship that you will ever have entails commitment. All right, just think about marriage. Think about marriage. Without commitment, without till death do us part, the bonds of marriage, those are tenuous at best. Without commitment, you'll get up and walk out as soon as that sacrifice becomes real and becomes costly. We prefer informal relationships Right? Because nothing's finally demanded of us. Nothing is expected of us. Thus, we get to define the terms, not the church body. And then we're not finally accountable to anyone. But Jesus meant... To take all of those informal relationships and actually formalize them in the context of local churches. It's why the New Testament establishes things like elders and deacons, baptism and the Lord's Supper and discipline. He means for those relationships to have the kind of commitment that makes them stick, that makes them real, that communicates something to the outside world. A fifth, church membership misconception It's just about having a name on a list. You know, I've been asked once before, if my name's in the Lamb's Book of Life, why, why do I care if it's in your book? That's a good question. But just for starters, my aim this morning, as we talk about this, it's not for you to join this church. Again, it's to join some Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. But I think more importantly to that point, our membership in the universal church is meant to be expressed in visible local churches. That's how our membership in the universal church is meant to be expressed, in local churches. It's why Jesus gave local churches the authority to speak in his name as his representatives. So theologically and practically then, your commitment actually to a local church is of first importance. It's one of your most basic priorities. Your membership, it's not to your adult Bible fellowship. Your membership is not to your life group. It's not to a particular ministry or area of service that you're involved in. Jesus says that first commitment is to his bride, the local church. And it's one of the reasons why I want to sort of start closing some of those side doors into the church. And I want to direct everyone in through that front door of baptism and membership because I want to place stress where the Bible places stress, which is not a commitment to, again, to this ministry or to that Sunday school class, but it's actually commitment to the whole body, to the church together. Which means generally, it's just, it's not really wise to have non-members serving in nursery, or to have them teaching our youth, to have them leading in music, to have them going on missions trips. I mean, we've never heard their personal testimony. We don't know what they believe. Really, we don't know what they'll teach. They haven't committed themselves to the care and to the oversight of our body. So is it wise to give them access to children, to have them represent us in the city or out on the mission field if we're not actually even sure of their most basic Christian commitments and character? I think a sixth... Membership misconception is that membership ought to be based on affinity groups. It ought to be based on affinity groups. Some would say, and there's lots of stuff out this. If you read church growth material, some would say the best way to grow a church is you, you target a demographic and then you structure your services and the music and the dress and the style of the building and everything else. You structure it to then reach that demographic But I would suggest we need to be exceedingly reluctant to intentionally introduce divisions into the body. Now, we'll have to divide over things like language. So this is an English-speaking church. And that's one of those things we have to divide over. Sometimes churches have to divide over size if they outgrow a building, right? They'll have to, they'll sort of multiply themselves and they'll have to separate and a new church will form. Those things will happen. But you know, in Revelation, John recounts a vision. A vision of a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. That's Revelation 7-9. You see, what we see is that each congregation on earth is to uniquely represent the unity of that end-time assembly. We're like embassies from the future is another way to think about it. So why then, why would we want to start introducing divisions across worldly lines? Why would we want to intentionally target our services to artists or cowboys or millennial hipsters or just college students. Why would we want to do that? Maybe if you're doing an evangelistic rally, I get it, but this isn't an evangelistic rally. This is when the church gathers to hear from and to be instructed by God's word. And if Jews and Gentiles, one of the greatest divisions the world has ever known there, if Jews and Gentiles weren't to have separate congregations Should we then be dividing over things like music or hobbies or shared interests? Stephen was preaching on Ephesians 2 and how we believe the gospel has actually reconciled Jew and Gentile together. It unites people of different age and different race, different status and background. So what does it mean? if we then intentionally divide over things as trivial as whether or not we'll have this instrumentation or this lineup of songs or whatever it might be. Now, we are who we are, of course. We can't escape. I mean, I am who I am. I guess I have a particular style, and we can't exactly escape that. But just I, for one, I am never going to lead us to divide this body intentionally along worldly lines. I think to divide a body on matters of mere style or preference, I fear that panders to consumerism. And even worse, it actually undermines the very gospel we say that we believe. All right. So, fourth question. Fourth question. So, Membership, all right, so it's important. We've taught some about it. But are there any standards to it? Should there be any standards? In our inclusive age, standards seem really unfair. They seem, they seem unfair. On just about every college campus, you're going to hear this in unison, that no one uniquely has the right to represent God. But Jesus actually says, yes, Christians do uniquely have the right and obligation and opportunity to uniquely represent God. And he gets to set those standards of how we're meant to represent him. And what are those standards? Well, just to be clear, it's not our moral perfection. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's our lack of moral perfection, and yet it is our hunger for more perfection. While the church welcomes all sinners, membership is only for repenting sinners. Right? Jesus himself has set that standard. We also have to have faith, right? Not just a faith in self or a faith in some mystical sense, but a faith that Jesus is God's son. He's uniquely the Christ who came to save his people from their sins. In other words, you need to be a Christian, you need to be a Christian. Churches are meant to be comprised of Christians. It's why we talk about regenerate church membership, if you've ever heard that expression. It's why we use that phrase. Because God actually calls churches to carefully consider the lives of the members' profession. Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 John 4. That's one of the reasons why, as elders, we do membership interviews with you. If you want to join the church, we want to hear your testimony. We want to get to know your life. And then we're going to bring some of that story, and we're going to share it with the congregation when we gather at a church conference, so they can hear about how you've come to faith, so they can hear something about your Christian life. That's how we care for one another. We want our earthly membership, as much as possible, to reflect that heavenly membership. But not only, we, we've got to be Christians, we also have to be biblically baptized Christians. So believer's baptism, we said last week, is how one steps out of the world and into the church. For a new convert, baptism is actually the way you join the church. Now someone said we don't have any right to exclude anyone from the church who's a genuine believer. And I think that's largely right. The problem is baptism isn't a separate requirement for church membership in like in addition to a credible profession baptism is actually how someone professes faith jesus has given the local church no authority to affirm someone's faith that hasn't already been publicly professed in baptism. So baptism is that line in the sand that Jesus and the apostles drew between the church and the world. And he simply didn't give us the liberty to erase that line or to draw it where we will. Now, additionally, those who who are Christians, who have been biblically baptized, they would we'd want them to sign our statement of faith and our church covenant, the first of those things, statement of faith, outlines those things we hold to be essential to salvation and essential to gathering together. Our church covenant describes how we'll seek to live with one another and care for one another. I don't want any of you to become members of this church one day to say, oh, well, wait a minute. Like, as a church, this is what you believe about hell or the inerrancy of scriptures or the divinity of Christ. We want sort of truth and advertising. We want you to know. We want you to own those beliefs as well yourself. The only reason this church belie- exists is because we actually believe certain things to be true. And we think it's a matter of life and death. So that statement of faith is critical to defining who we are, how we'll function together. And if it's not true, well, then we might as well just go home. We can celebrate moms. We can be done with our day. But the same with the church covenant. You know, what does it look like? to follow Christ worthily in this world? How do we intend to serve one another, to love one another, to pray for one another, to seek to build one another up, to rejoice with each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy, to bear with one another's burdens and sorrows? What does that look like? Well, that's what a church covenant is all about. That's what we commit to. That's what we agree to. In many respects, it's like a marriage covenant, like marriage vows that we take as we unite together. The only difference that a church covenant's not till death do us part. That's one, one big difference. But a fifth and final question I want us to address. Are there any benefits? Any benefits to talking about this? I just want to talk about benefits for two groups of people. And the first is for believers. You know, in the Bible, Christians are commanded to love, but they're not called to love just anyone. But as First Peter 2.17 says, we're to actually love the brotherhood that are among you. Those who are among you. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, and he says in First Thessalonians 5:11, that we're to encourage one another, we're to encourage one another and build one another up. The church is to guard one another, to keep one another accountable, as we've seen from 1 Corinthians 5: "As fallen people, we're actually prone to self-deception. We're actually not always the best judge of ourselves. It's why we're called, in Second Corinthians 13:5, to examine ourselves, to see whether or not we're in the faith. And one of the main things that God has set up to deal with self-deception is actually the local church. The local church is think of it as like an assurance of salvation cooperative. And you may struggle with doubt, and you may think, I don't know if I believe. I'm, I'm so discouraged. I've had so much doubt, and you've got, you've got Christians around you who see you, who watch your life, who can come in, who can speak, and who can lift you up and encourage you because they know your life, and they know your faith, and they know your belief. See, all these commands to one another to love, to encourage, to guard, that's what God intends to give shape to our own personal discipleship. In our pride, we think, I don't need anyone else. But in humility, God has made all of us as dependent upon others. And God established the local church to be that discipling program. He doesn't mean for us to have to go outside the local church to figure out how to love others and care for others. Where do we learn how to follow Jesus? God says that ought to be in a local church. So to whom do we go to be taught? To whom do we go for spiritual help? To whom do we go to receive assistance in a time of need? In times of suffering and loss and celebration and jubilation, God intends that fellowship to be within local churches. And there's to be that kind of depth of relationship in this room. Relationships that are not built merely around how we can be spiritual consumers, but how we can seek to be spiritual providers for one another. And so we comfort others. We comfort others with that comfort that we ourselves have received from God, 2 Corinthians 1. It's what powerfully Cole read from Acts chapter 2 earlier in the service. Now listen, no church is perfect at this. You'll figure out really quickly. Churches are messy because people are messy, and that's just the way it goes. But, you know, as I was reflecting upon this, one of the things that that made UBC so attractive to me and my wife while we were visiting last spring were your relationships. So we were with you for a weekend and we watched the way that some of you talked to one another. You spoke affectionately of the ministry here. You cared for each other, you loved on one another. And when we got on that plane, right up at X A at the end of that weekend, we looked at one another and we said, How do we say no to these people? How do we say no to these people? Arkansas, to us, wasn't attractive. But you made it attractive. That's what local churches do. That's what they're meant to do. That's the fruit of that kind of meaningful membership in the body. Pray that that depth of committed relationships, that that would grow and continue to mark us as a church. But I think second, I want you to see membership is actually a great blessing for unbelievers as well for unbelievers as well, when Christians love, when they encourage, when they serve and warn one another in committed ways, when we actually move outside of our cliques and our affinity groups to care for people who have nothing in common with us except Jesus, that's actually where we make the gospel beautiful because where are, Christian, where are non-Christians to go to see Jesus? Where are they to go to see Jesus? Jesus. They're to go to local churches, right? Christian preaching might make the gospel audible, but Christian living together in local congregations, that's what makes the gospel visible. It's what makes the gospel visible. Unity in the midst of our diversity is how God intends to display his glory to the outside world. It's not just the depth of the relationships in here, but it's also the breadth of those relationships, So in Ephesians 3, 8 to 10, what glorifies God and glorifies the wisdom of God, even to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, well, it's not churches built around shared interests or style, but it is Jews and Greeks with nothing in common except Jesus uniting together, loving on one another in local bodies, right? This is what non-Christians can't understand, they, a non-Christian can perfectly understand pockets of homogeneous individuals like in community. Like The non-Christian world gets that. There's nothing supernatural about pockets of homogeneous communities. Nothing supernatural about that. It's very easy. I could gather together with people who ride motorcycles. I'd love that. The world understands that. But we want to be the kind of community that makes the world sort of scratch their head. The kind of community that the outside world says, okay, I actually don't understand why these people are together. It makes no sense to me. They seem to have nothing in common except Jesus. And that is a super powerful evangelistic tool. It's one of the best evangelistic tools we have as a church. That kind of love that we're to have for one another, John 13, that the outside world is to see and understand that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what Christianity is all about. So pray for that unity among us and pray for kind of increased diversity in that unity, whether it's racial or socioeconomic, right? That's how we become a beacon of hope and of light to a lost world. Now listen, this is, I recognize there's a lot of teaching here. You've been patiently listening and enduring. I don't know what other landmines I may have stepped on this morning. If I did, just shoot me emails, talk to me this week. But as we close, I just want to say, why does this matter? As we finish up, why does it matter? I think in part it's because the corrosion of our individualism and our consumerism, we tend to treat the church like it was some divine afterthought. We tend to treat the church like it was some accident of history, something that we can add to our Christian lives along with Bible study or this prayer group or that author or keeping a journal. And yet the church is at the very center of God's eternal purposes. It's at the very heart of Christ's work. Christ founded the church, Matthew 16. He purchased the church with his own blood, Acts 20 28. He intimately identifies with the church in Acts 9 4. He calls the church his own body, 1 Corinthians 12. He calls the church the very dwelling place of his spirit, 1 Corinthians 4. The church is that chief instrument in which our daily discipleship and the evangelization of the lost and how God means to be glorified in the world, that all comes together in local churches. So why, my friends, why would you not want to be part of that? Why would you not want to be part of that work and that institution that Jesus loves and has given himself to. Let's pray. And Father, we pray. We're thankful that kind of love that Jesus has expressed toward us. Thanks doesn't even do it justice. Lord, we pray that the kind of lives that we've thought of this morning, those kind of relationships, those breadth of relationships, depth of relationships, that kind of commitment messy commitment at times, but that kind of commitment that would display the gospel would be increasingly clear among us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.